sex has completely changed. It's cut off from its origins. He makes his little bower and he arranges it all perfectly. He's obsessive. The female comes and she's like, that little twig right there, it's out of place. <laughs> if he delivers, she will reward. Brett and Heather have this concept called lineage selection. So I've always kind of had this in mind that I want a powerful lineage. Who do I give this cattle to if I die? Who's in your patriline? And so there becomes a deal between men and women in exchange for, I will reward myself exclusively to you. I go to Bible study. No, yeah, I read it every week. I want to understand the rise and fall of my civilization. Think about the Israelites. They do not lose their God. They keep their god. How do they do that? Persian Empire actually maintained a multicultural, multi-religious empire without falling into any of these traps. People, when they get into things like X-Risk and sense-making, it's like, put on your monocle. <laughs> yes, here we are. We're trying to dive into these serious topics, but also we're all fools. I was like, oh, there's like this bodybuilding guy. <laughs> and you see my hair, right? That's my COVID hair. I know. <laughs> Recording. Welcome everyone to another brand new episode of Noetic Nomads. I'm Albert Kim, unofficial nonsense maker in residence of the Stoa. And with me today is a Stoan who actually has coherent ideas to share with the world. A queen bee, or should I say queen P as a philosopher, amongst the sea of cerebral wannabe sperm donors, simping in service of the overlord, which is Ovum. As matriarch of the Stoa, she helped midwife into existence radical ideas, insights, connections, and conversations with sessions of the likes of Socratic speed dating, the future of love, sex, and friendship with Nina Power, and the aptly titled Philosopher Queens with fellow badass and empress of the aesthetic Rachel Haywire. Ladies, gents, and those of us on the fence, please help me in introducing a conduit of the dangerous Dionysian who transcends the fad of the trad versus feminist, of the traditionalist versus polemicist, and of stayed notions of the masculine and feminine to serve as a go-between, mediator, and one of our many tribal mothers giving birth to the more beautiful world we know in our hearts as possible. I could be speaking of none other than the brainy Blackbird herself, the one and only Raven Connolly. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's all I can say with that. Yeah, I mean, thank you so much for coming on. I mean, I've been uh, really, I uh, wanted to get you on. And when I saw your little tweet storm the other day, I was like, oh my God, this is perfect to get her on. So again, uh, thank you so much. And there's a lot to talk about. Um, for those who are unaware, we are recording this on Thursday, January 7th. The day after, uh, I don't know what, the, the day after, I don't know, the Capitol riots. I don't know if it has an official name yet, but yeah, that happened and we're going to get into that uh, real quick. But first, actually, I want to know, do you remember how we first encountered each other or how you even became aware of Alberto's existence? Alberto's existence. I feel like I don't remember precisely when you first came into my orbit, because I figure it was at a Stoa session, mm. right? Um, but I know for sure that I saw you around... You know, you, you were all of a sudden just like everywhere. That's kind of how it felt. 
you know, I knew you were around, but then suddenly there was like your Twitter presence and you were doing all these events and you invited me to your mixer event. And I think yeah. that's when it really became clear to me that you're doing something special in this space. Mm, cool. Thank you. Um, and that's my, you know, kind of acquaintance with you, but what, when did when did we when do you remember that we kind of like came into this orbit? is the very interesting thing because my first stoa session was actually one that you were facilitating oh. in fact i'm gonna pull it up right now oh god <laughs> i know i'm sorry i had to do this so i will share this with the world mm, good oh samo can you hear that yeah a little bit you, can you hear that you can't. Oops. Yeah, I no, I could hear it. No, I could hear it. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, Samuel, uh, I love what you're talking about right now. I have like a mind boner just listening to you. And um, I'm, I'm... so quick, do you, do you actually remember that or no? I actually completely remember you now. Yeah, I completely <laughs> remember this. You know why? You know why I I'll always remember this because I remember when I said Samo, I have a mind boner. I saw you and you just started laughing. So this is what I remember. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I completely remember. I was like, oh, this is like this bodybuilding guy. <laughs> what? Yeah. Who is this bodybuilding guy? And you see my hair, right? That's my COVID hair. <laughs> I know. That's yeah. why I didn't recognize. Yeah. And your setup is literally different now. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We go way back, Albert. Exactly. Oh, and, and and this was the crazy part wait so you could hear the sound right clearly yeah okay mm -hmm. so this is what's crazy now i was looking back on this video right and i was like oh yeah this is my first appearance let me look at it and then the, the what i actually talked about is actually kind of crazy because when i you know look into your history and then what i talked about in my first session like this is what i talked about uh, yeah, hurry up, hurry up. but i also but i'm playing around with with biology as a, as a framework because it, because like I look at what human beings are doing as by becoming a superorganism. I've heard people use biological, you know, like as like a as like a metaphor, but I actually see that literally as what we're doing right now. And I actually see um, us becoming a superorganism as like 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 basically what we're trying to do. And my point is, I believe that biology has like countless examples of of. Of, of successfully instantiated uh, anti anti rivalrous games like serial endosymbiosis, where we actually have okay, I'll, that's enough of that. But anyway, um, I think you get the point. So I do see what connection you're trying to make. Yeah, to, that is very weird. So um, for those who are unaware, uh, you studied uh, evolutionary biology. I don't know if that's the exact term at uh, Evergreen State College with uh, a couple of names people may have heard of, uh, Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying. So I just, I mean, there is just so much synchronicity there and we could get into that. But first let's uh, address the elephant in the room, the elephant that burst into the Capitol building and took photos and put them all on Twitter. So the Q shaman, <laughs> the Q shaman. yeah, it's just like, okay. So again, like this is happening the day after that all happened. And the way I want to frame this is because like I mentioned, you were at Evergreen State College and at, you know, when that whole fiasco happened, you know, and then you later moved to Portland. And then uh, shortly after you moved to Portland, there was a whole lot of craziness going down. That could be considered even ground zero of the mess that's happening right now. And then yesterday happened. So, 
you know, and especially like you, I, I looked into your background, you, you grew up in Olympia, you're very much into like anarchism and like radical movements. And but it's just like, where you are right now and seeing what's happened, like, what is your take on what the hell's going on right now? I'm very curious. Yeah, I'm just going to preface this to say that I feel like um, my attitude about politics right now is that of observation and curiosity rather than prescription mm. or condemnation. So I feel like often the political conversation ends up being, do I condone or do I not condone this action or behavior or this mm. person or this party or this whatever? And I'm like pretty tired of that as a trap basically for conversation. Mm. Um, and then the other thing is prescribing things. Well, they ought to do this or they ought to do that or they should have done that or they should not have done that. I'm also not really, I personally, I don't actually feel like I have the background in political economy to even prescribe any, <laughs> anything. Mm. So I think my position, especially going into what I am anticipating is going to be a tumultuous kind of political future for America and the West more generally looking at like what's happening in the UK, coming to the, uh, the situations, these events with a prescribed notion of what ought to be the case or what is good behavior I think is a cognitive bias that mm. ought to be corrected for. So that's, that's just my preface here is that I, I don't know, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I, I have no idea, right? What's happening, what's going on. What I'm seeing is what seems to be a kind of barbarian, you know, mob, like, mm. at, you know, like a, after a football game, you know, that gets all riled up and uh, ends up breaking into a mall or something like that, or, or yeah. like, a, or a Trump hotel, you know, and just running around and like playing. Um, I think we're seeing so much of our political action these days is within the realm of LARPing. You know, it's, mm. it's really live action role playing. It's really for the camera. So there's really, um, I mean, I think the society of the spectacle, which mm, was, yeah. you know, the Situationist Manifesto really illustrates uh, a lot of our political circumstances today and what really kind of undermines genuine political action. Although I'm at this point uh, remaining agnostic as to what actually would be genuine political action, I don't really know at this point. It's like on the one hand, if you care about the symbols of America, I could see how any of these recent movements would be quite frustrating. Trump coming into the White House is obviously a kind of desecration of the sense of American elitism. He used the symbols around him to kind of smear or make profane the sanctity of the Oval Office. Mm. You see that happening in the kind of anarchist BLM movements where they burn the flag and they have a very kind of anti-American aesthetic. And then you also see, I think the Trumpists are also desecrating America, even though they present themselves as if they are, you know, the ones saving the face of America. In reality, this event is a complete humiliation of the competency of the state and also of Trump's followers and Trump himself. Like everybody just looks absolutely incompetent. You know, I think in response to this, like you can get a laugh out of it. I've laughed at plenty of memes. I've laughed yeah. at plenty of this. This is yeah. hilarious. Yeah. That's the thing. This, this is funny. It's funny. It's crazy. I'm it's laughing right now, funny. but it's crazy. It's crazy what's going on. But yeah, it's funny. It's like funny that I mean, and this has been the case, I think, 
since the beginning with Trump, like this is kind of a reality TV show for him and it continues to be so. But rather than that being the case only for him, it's actually something that's the case for most of us mm, as we yeah. continue to integrate with this medium. And of course, we're doing that even more intensively now. I think that that's kind of my high level response to this is I'm not quite sure where I am in terms of like my vantage point. Because on some level, I feel like protecting competency is something I'm interested in. But on the other hand, I feel like we have incompetency within the government, within institutions and within the populace that's like so widespread that what is, what's the purpose of protecting the symbols of competency when you don't have the substance of it? So like in terms of where to go, I'm actually not entirely sure in terms of condemning or condoning or prescribing anything, but that's just my kind of diagnostic. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I definitely resonate with that. Like, you know, again, like we're not trying to choose sides and be prescriptive here, but like, as I did mention in uh, my intro, I do see yourself, you know, whether it's intentionally or not acting as like a go-between, like, I know, like uh, you've kind of represented yourself as like an androgen, like as a go-between and you speak of uh, Alexander Bard's work and I've gotten into his work recently as well. And I see myself reflected in his concepts of like the shamanoid, the one that, that goes between the different worlds, right? And then like, and, and for example, the shamanoid, he, he takes like vows of celibacy many times. Uh, he, he's seen as like a conduit to the divine, to God. And he like, he walks through the battlefield without being touched because he's just like, he's like the mediator between all this. And I just find this, I find this fascinating because I don't know if you've, listen to any of my episodes where I go into my history, but I am actually voluntarily celibate. I'm a virgin by choice. I uh, openly talk about how I feel like I'm channeling the universe. And one of my things, like as you were part of uh, the next generation of sense maker and change makers event, I'm like consciously trying to bring the tribes together. I got into Bard's work after I started doing all this. So I find it insane that I am actually kind of exemplifying this in a way. And I, you know, so it's kind of weird. You're also, that's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I love it. No, I'm so into it. Yeah. Yeah. uh, I mean, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah. So I'm like, I'm, so I'm just curious, like, if you could, like, speak about that. So, I, again, like, I know you're into Bard's work and, like, the archetypes that I may be embodying and maybe you're embodying, whether consciously or not, like, it's happening. Yeah. And, yeah, in terms of tribal mapping, I'm actually, I feel conflicted about a lot of, like, my role or position within mm. these worlds because, on the one hand, I think that this is maybe, like, I, I have very kind of, traditional aspirations in many respects. I aspire to be a mother and to have many children and to educate them and to raise them in the way in which I see fit, which would hopefully be in a, you know, interconnected community that would be bound through ritual and reverence for some sort of divine entities. Also, you know, obviously educated with uh, in philosophy and science. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, so, on the, you know, I have these very kind of like traditional aspirations on the one hand, and I feel very connected to life in that sense, right? So like mm. the sense of building the future, creating the future, that being through the lineage, through children, 
so my thinking really runs in the direction of what's it, what is the future as it comes through the children that hopefully I will bring into the world, but also the children that exist today and the children that will be born today, tomorrow, the next day, right? Um, so I have that kind of sitting in the, in, you know, tugging me in some direction. Mm. But then I also have the desire to be out in the open, to talk to people, to kind of live a life that is quite, you know, disconnected from those kinds of responsibilities. I realize that there's, mm. there's not yeah. always trade-offs there, but I think that there are in many, in many cases. And I guess I'm also beginning to understand the cost of being online in a much deeper sense. Uh, mm, you know, yeah. it seemed like a, when I was kind of beginning last year, it seemed like there was so much upside to creating things online and drawing more people to my torch and to, to seeing who else was out there. And now I feel like I'm, I'm not so sure about moving forward mm, um, in, in terms of a kind of like so-called like public life. And it seems like as well with, uh, especially with this particular event that the sensitivity that we're going to have to certain kinds of ideas is going to go up as much mm. as it already has. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I would say that I guess the shamanoid kind of characteristics for myself is I don't have the same kinds of aesthetic responses to dangerous ideas, let's mm. say. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, read neo-reactionary material and, you know, get into all sorts of kind of like political or ph philosophical uh, I think, you know, collapse, philosophy, all sorts of stuff um, mm. that, I mean, even anarchism, right? Like that's not really considered to be within the Overton window. Mm. And um, even traditionalist values aren't really seen as very acceptable in some circles. So there's a sense of caution. And I think a lot of this is connected to coming to terms to what I think it means to be a woman in some sense. Yeah. Um, so all of the, you know, all of these things are kind of entangled and I'm not quite sure. Cause I'm like, you know, in the sense of being the go between, I don't think I'm the shaman. Like mm, I guess yeah. that would be the easy answer. Like, mm. because I'm, I'm too attached to lineage to be the shaman. The shaman. You're is right. Yes, yes, yes. I see. So yeah. I would be, I would be potentially be an androgen in the sense of like the one who goes between the males and the females. But even then, I'm not quite sure about that because there's a kind of gambling with your lineage that you do when you're in those kinds of positions. Um, and I don't know that I'm really willing to make that gamble. I think of myself more in some sense as being like the grandmother in like a young person's body. Like, <laughs> oh, really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm growing, I'm growing to be a grandmother. Like I'm growing to be the matriarch, like the mm. old woman who like carries the wisdom of her time and is genuinely wise. I mean, I think that not all old people are wise. Right. Mm. Um, and I think that for me, it's how can I take care of the people in my realm and make sure that their future is ensured and kind of from the vantage point of this long perspective of the intergenerational perspective of the of the perspective of the old woman who sees her like you know she's 90 and she's looking at a at a three-year-old right mm, like yeah. you have a sense of the future happening because you know that you're coming to an end and that this person is going to continue to grow mm, yeah. right so 
That's, I don't know. Like, I don't know. I don't know where I am. You tell me. I mean, uh, <laughs> what I see is I see someone just like me and just like all of us in a very liminal space. And it's a space of vulnerability, but it's also an, of unknowingness, but it's also of a lot of possibility. And uh, I, I see it and um, it's, it's very intriguing. I'm very, I very appreciate uh, uh, you sharing uh, your perspective there. Um, and like, again, like as you stated, it's like, you are kind of like, you're a little bit of a traditionalist, but like I said, like you don't, you're not like in one of these boxes, you're kind of like transcending into like your own little thing. And I would like to go into actually the tweet that uh, was my excuse to be like, Raven, let's come on. But I was like, I always wanted you to be on. But it was, uh, it happened on uh, December, uh, December 30th. And uh, if I could just read it, um, you responded to someone who stated, I, I quote, I'm a trad in that I'm extremely favor of intelligent, powerful women having the right to stay home, take massive stimulants, read philosophy, maintain social ties, encourage good morals, and raise a generation of children brilliant enough to invent the internet and you're like high status so i'm just curious and then what you went into later is you got into a little uh you know into a little thing with someone else and you were talking about how like you know the, the person was like oh my god what is up with women they always rewarding simp behavior and you're like take it up with evolution the egg is master and I'm like, this is something uh, I'm very curious about. And I think a lot of people would be very curious to hear. So uh, can you go into uh, what it is that you mean when you say the egg is master and, and like kind of your uh, emerging uh, philosophy behind the egg? Sure. Well, I mean, I think a lot of this ties into simping, right? Hmm. Which is a pejorative for a certain kind of behavior where men prostrate. Uh, for for women <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. online but I think it also kind of extends outside of the online environment into uh, real life but of course we see all these things happening um, in these public forums and my feed is often filled with people like calling out simps <laughs> like very it's you know whatever also there's just like been a lot of traffic around like men and women stuff recently Mm, um, in yeah. my feed, which like to some degree is fine, but and then in some cases it's just annoying. Um, I think that there's a lot of there's like a huge lack of generosity about women in um, particular in some corners of Twitter that I, you know, look at. Mm. Yeah, I mean, internet misogyny is like it's it's there, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, and I I don't know like what I, it's funny because I've. In, in some senses, I've learned a lot about what it means to be a woman from, you know, men going their own way or like whatever mm. these like, like yeah, it, or yeah. incels or whatever, because they're like, you know, based and we'll just talk about what the dynamics are without trying to pretend like women are some sort of like perfect beings that never engage in questionable behavior or something like that. So, yeah, in terms of the context of the tweet, I was indicating that this tweet that this man posted where he was uplifting a notion of the woman as as mother but as also as educator and well the thing that really got me was that he had this insight that I don't always see on like whatever misogynist twitter or whatever that's not really what it is but you know mm. let's just use that for yeah. a second um is that your wife is going to be a huge influence on your children. 
and she is going to be the one primarily educating them when they're small. And uh, that, I mean, like the whole notion, like let's say of the mother tongue, right? Like she will literally be giving them their mother tongue by speaking yeah. to them. And, and the mother creates the world of the child in a very like deep, profound way that ends up being with the child for the rest of their existence, regardless of whether or not it went well. And so to me, this man like seems to be indicating and also signaling that he understands this connection between the mother and like the quality of that woman. So not like, you know, low IQ woman who just does what she says, but a woman who actually is like well-educated and capable and kind of playing this role within the community that actually benefits the, the lineage, benefits the children and also benefits the husband. So I was like, okay, the fact that this guy is saying this is, is, is very high status behavior. Like this is actually a man who understands what the hell's going on in <laughs> yeah, terms yeah. of the dynamics between men and women and their children. Um, and I wanted to signal that, you know, I think the person who tweeted thought that I was signaling merely to men, right? That like I was, I was a woman who was rewarding simping mm, behavior. Okay, yeah, I see, yeah. You know, um, but... I was as much indicating to men as I was indicating to women, right? Mm, So I think like the whole dynamic between men and women has been just like completely aggravated, you know, uh, lots of different reasons for that. But what I responded to when he called me out for (laughs) rewarding hinting behavior was that Mm. for men behaving in certain kinds of ways that you see as being desirable or not right so and that runs all the way to the to the egg right all the you can look at you can look at the mating dynamics of birds right so the man or the male bird let's like take a bower bird for example like he he makes his little bower he does all he gets all the little colors and he arranges it all perfectly he's obsessive right he like spends all of his time like moving one branch you know to create this like perfect bower for the female and the female comes and she like she's like that little twig right there it's out of place <laughs> like, mm, no 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 yeah. no no no, no. Yeah. and um you know if he delivers if he delivers she will reward mm. Um, so, and I think that that's the underlying dynamic, right? Is if the male delivers, the female rewards. And that is kind of also within the gametes in the sense that the female is the stationary, expensive in the sense that it has more material in it. It actually has more act- like genetic material inside of it. Um, so it's, it's like stationary, it's fatty, and um, it's expensive, right? And yeah, so exactly. because of that, it just, it stays. It's something that you don't want to just spend that on anything, right? It's like you want to keep it protected, right? Mm. So the female has the job of protecting the egg and making sure that her egg goes to the best mate. And this is the dynamic of sexual selection, right? And the male, he has male literally being like the gamete that has less material less genetic material, moves fast, it's mobile, right? So it's the thing that's moving around. The egg is stationary Mm. and the sperm is coming to, right? It's moving to. So in this sense, you can think of it as coming to deliver itself to the egg. 
And the egg has to be ruptured, right? So the egg kind of delivers itself or rewards itself to this process. And the, I don't know, the, the female organism can control whose sperm has the opportunity to access the egg. She's ultimately the gates of that. And she rewards herself, like she is the reward, kind of in this intrinsic sense. So I think of that as being one of like the underlying evolutionary dynamic. Um, obviously, we see all sorts of permutations in our current environment uh, because sex has completely changed. Sex is like sex is something decoupled from reproduction. And we don't even yeah. have a framework that sees it arising out of reproduction anymore. You know, it's it's cut off from its origins and understood as merely like acts of pleasure between two people. And I don't take that perspective. I take more of an emergent perspective in the sense that I think from this like position within our evolutionary history and how it kind of arises, right? And so you have these underlying dynamics that get rise to the next level of emergence they they get incorporated and included they don't get mm. they don't really fundamentally get transcended unless there's a serious change and we haven't seen that yet we're still we're still bodies you know um and in, from the perspective of evolution it's really it's kind of a i don't know i'd love to make an animation of this at some point but like i have this visual in my mind that what's really happening over each generation is not, you know, a baby is born, grows, has a baby, is born, grows, has a baby, is born. But it's really, it's really like an egg printing machine or a womb printing machine. It's like the mm. womb is making more wombs, is making more wombs, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's from the vantage point of those gametes, mm. right? It's the gametes that from an evolutionary perspective are the most significant part of, the, of what we carry. And things that like celibacy or like all of these alternative ways um, dealing in the realm of sex and reproduction is a permutation. You know, it's a human kind of invention or playing around with these types of dynamics. But that doesn't mean that the dynamics go away. Mm, yeah. I mean, I, mean, I think that's, yeah, that's, that's, it was really fascinating. You talked about how like, and again, like this is, this whole thing, it, it continues on. Like uh, the archetype keeps uh, reproducing itself in uh, through different levels of complexity. And like, for example, I mean, like, you know, the old paradigm, the very masculinist paradigm was like, hey, you know, the fittest sperm, the fastest guy who gets there is the is the winner. It's like actually no, it's like they're all dancing around uh, uh, the egg, the all expensive, uh, the all important expensive egg, and eventually, the egg is what allows you know whichever uh, sperm that allows in. That's what uh, decides you know what uh, impregnates. You know what's interesting because again like I don't talk about like the, the masculine and like the feminine archetypes because like very much how they're like the sperm there's so many sperm and there's only one egg so obviously you got the expensive uh gamete versus the inexpensive one this is very much played out in uh the the male's role in society like we're expendable you know we could have one man <laughs> impregnate an entire village uh worth of females but and the rest of them can all be sent to war we see this uh playing out uh, all the time and in fact i see it myself i was just saying recently with all this craziness going on I was like, you know what? I feel like I feel like something activated. Like, I feel like I should be out on the on the battlefield right now. And what I would love, I would love to go out in a blaze of glory. To me, like my dream is to have a glorious death. And I'm like, I won't even reproduce. 
and like I just think that is 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 so, is so interesting, and 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 that that whole dynamic that continues to play out. One thing that I, I want to go, go into, and we're talking about again uh, these these archetypes and like how the invert, you know, the inversion of you know the biological reality versus you know these myths that play out, like uh, the creation myth of like Adam and Eve, and how like the 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 create like the creator in the judeo christian traditions is that you know the father is the creator and then the original human is a man from the man comes the female but then what it really is you know the mother is creator all humans start in the womb as female and then once in an acceptable threshold of testosterone is exposed to the fetus that's when it you know it becomes a male and then again, and that's this is all contrary to, to, you know, again, with the biblical mistake. And like the way that I see it is that the female actually created the male as a tool, like as a builder, as a defender, like a very cerebral disembodied. And that's a lot of things that people talk about right now, how the male is very disembodied and we're trying to get back to our bodies. But what happened, of course, is the tool took over and that man is continuing this cycle with, for instance, AI. Uh, a tool that we created, which is even more cerebral, which is more uh, disembodied in his head, and that it's going to take us over. So I see this kind of dynamic uh, playing out again. And uh, I and I know like you're into um, Xeno feminism and some transhumanist work and uh, accelerationist uh, kind of thinking. So I just wondering uh, what if you what your particular thoughts on like with this trajectory that we're all going on and possibly any archetypes that are, are being uh, manifested. Yeah, well, you brought up a lot of things. <laughs> Sorry. The Adam and Eve story, uh, I think is interesting to begin with hmm. uh, because it does run contrary to what looks self-evident, which is that all bodies come from the female body because the woman is the, the, the gestator, right? She's the one who brings and carries the the infant and brings that infant male or female into existence and Mm. so we all kind of run back to our mothers in that sense uh whereas you know in the creation story of genesis you have adam adam right which means like earthling essentially who i think actually is seen as being androgynous there are interpretations that he's actually not male really until the female is made from his rib Mm. and the thing about it is like if you think about where the female is made from is she made from his head as if she came from some higher place than him no she made from his foot as if she is lower no she's made from his rib as which is a which is a place of equality right um that's an interesting interpretation so i think that there's a lot of mysteries in that story she's also the penultimate right once she has been created god is done Mm, god has finished his work the woman has been made right he kind of like gets gets up to her and then Mm. she's the last she's the cherry on top right um, so I think in some sense, there's a lot more that we can get out of those stories than just, you know, woman is subordinate to man, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think in some sense, the reason why we see this shift from the creator God as this combination of forces in a kind of pagan sense where you'll have multiple different 
entities that are born of a consummation. So in a, in a more pagan polytheistic religion, the creators are usually a male and a female god who mm-hmm. consummate to create all the lower gods, right? Uh, you have Kronos and, and Gaia, whatever. Um, and actually, that might not be the exact pairing, but you know what I mean. Yeah. I yeah. <laughs> you have Zeus and Hera, whatever yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whoever in they the are. The Pantheon, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and this creation of a monotheistic god is a creator god who has not ever been created. He mm. just is. And he's outside of nature, right? So if you're making a god that is like eternal and outside of nature, you wouldn't place him within like the organic or the evident kind of ways in which things come to be that is the way in which paganism arises, Mm -hmm. right? So I think that in some senses leads to this, I mean, fixation basically in the Old Testament with patriline. So that's Mm -hmm. another thing that shifts in these biblical texts. You end up with just paragraphs after paragraphs of okay this is abraham and all of his sons and then you know his sons had these sons and they were kings and then and then here we are all the way down at you know jesus (laughs) here we are at jesus (laughs) so the and this is something i've actually talked about with bard because Mm. i you know i've always been very fascinated by lineage and uh you know in class we brett and heather have this concept called lineage selection which is actually kind of runs against some of the population level kind of ways in, of, of learning or thinking group selection models for, for thinking mm-hmm. about evolution, right? So they have this theory, they're like lineage selection. And so I've always kind of had this in mind that I want a powerful lineage. I'm interested in, in um, you know, having a, a nice big lineage, right? Like <laughs> yeah, yeah, I want to yeah. have kids. I want to like <laughs> see them come into the world. I yeah. want to see them be successful. So I've always kind of had that orientation in my, in my thinking. But when I brought this up to Bard, you know, he was like, well, men are interested in lineage, not women. Mm. Right. Yeah. And that like stopped me. I was like, what does that mean exactly? And I actually, so I've been metabolizing this over time to kind of think about what that actually means. And I think he's right in a sense of, he talks a lot about the socian, which is this kind of ideal kind of tribe of prehistory. And from that vantage point, you know, the woman, the woman knows who her children are. She doesn't need to know who the man was. Mm, yeah, she exactly, doesn't need. Yeah. She doesn't need to be concerned about the patrol line, right, or the purity of that line, because she has this knowledge because she gave birth of who her children are. Whereas the father does not have that certainty of paternity, mm. right? Yeah, he has to trust that the child he's investing in is the child that his genetics are actually stored within, and. When you get the invention of property, when you have tribes that end up with like, let's say herds of animals or once sedentary kind of agricultural behavior takes hold, you have stores of property or grain. The question of who inherits, who inherits all of this becomes important for the male, the man, mm, yeah, because yeah, yeah. he's the one producing most of this, right? Um, the women are in the inner circle, the men are in the outer circle. The women are, you know, 
taking care of that which is internal to the to the community to the tribe and the men are kind of building their wealth on the on the outsides and if you have a bunch of cattle and and you're looking and you're trying to figure out well who do i give this cattle to if i die you need to know who's in your patra line who are your sons <laughs> and uh, you don't know that uh, for sure unless you create some sort of social architecture to ensure that that is the case and so there becomes a deal there's like an arrangement between men and women that occurs where women are like okay in exchange for your protection and you know your delivery of things to me i will reward myself exclusively to you mm, then yeah. you can know that these are your children and not someone else's children and the men also reinforce these things towards one another so you also see this in the bible they're like moments when men from another group like have sex with the, you know the daughter of one of these patriarchs and all of her brothers end up killing these guys mm. you know so you end up with these kind of honor cultures as well because you have to preserve the integrity of the social system and if you have defectors if you have people that break you know these rules then they get the wrath of the patriarchs kind of coming down upon them so I feel like the the patriline and the certainty of paternity and this this basic kind of asymmetry between men and women, where women know who their children are, where they are in their cycle as well. Women women know what's going on with them mm -hmm. and their bodies, but men don't. And this asymmetry, I think, also is a kind of ripe dimension for deception, for cheating, for these kinds of, you know, almost war warring tactics between the sexes mm. for one to get more out of the other than the other wants to give. So those are all kind of entangled in those stories, the story of Adam and Eve and, and the Old Testament. I've been reading, I've been reading the Bible. So like all of this stuff. Oh, wait, recently? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, I read it every week. Um, every what? week I go to Bible study. Yeah, I'm, re I'm running a group that's been, we've been reading the Old Testament and the New Testament as well for months now. Um, yeah like this is like blowing my mind is like i'm like what like, like who who is raven it's like really you go into bible study because like i see you you're like this like i don't i don't know i don't, I don't know so you're like this like you got the you're like dark you're into like the industrial stuff you're like you know this radical and you're like oh yeah i lead a bible study every week i lead a bible study group <laughs> so yeah i mean I, I like i very much like to hear like so what uh so what is the uh the the underlying thought about about leading this like is this something that you're personally interested maybe philosophically or spiritually or, or what where is this coming from uh well i mean i think in, i'm just primarily interested in literacy at some point i want to understand the rise and fall of my civilization and its similarities mm. and differences to different civilizations who were based on different kinds of sacred texts and also from different periods of history so i mean this this type of this idea of God is different, you know, this monotheistic God, this eternal creator God uh, that is outside, that is transcendent, that's beyond nature, that is ever as everlasting and never changing. All of these qualities are different than the way in which the pagan cosmology of where good and evil was all created in the beginning of time. Mm. You know, it was all created at the origin and you could live in a world where there was both good and evil. And that was all created by the gods and the gods didn't really care about humans. You know, it was, they were kind of fickle and they, you know, they were arguing amongst themselves quite often. And 
sometimes they would come down to earth and have sex with a woman. And like, you know, there were all sorts of different kinds of things that the gods would do to, ex and I mean, a lot of this from an evolutionary perspective, you can see was functional, right? You had certain kinds of phenomena going on in your environment. How do you explain it? How do you talk about it? Why do we harvest all of our crops on this day? Well, this was the day that Persephone went down into Hades, mm. uh, you know, because Hades stole her from, from the field. And so on this day, we end up, we harvest all of our foods because the winter's coming, you know, whatever. So those mythologies ended up creating structures of coordination for people within communities. And they worked for quite a while. But there was also this dynamic where if you were worshiping a certain god, let's say uh, you, you were really into Persephone or some specific kind of god or Baal or whatever, like you're a warring tribe, you have a bunch of gods in your pantheon, but there's this one specific god that you're pretty much, you're almost a cult of that god. Mm, um, yeah. You know, if you're conquered by another people, you have to give up your god because your god didn't win. Your God didn't, didn't do what he needed to do or what she needs to do to protect you from the rival group's gods. And you had to assimilate or you were, you know, murdered or whatever. Right. So there's this process where, or integrated, there was also integration yeah. that would happen. So you would, you would see that you'd have two people come together, two peoples and there would then be the creation of like a, a father god that gave birth to, you know, or father and mother god who gave birth to these two gods mm, that were like yeah. the prominent gods of these mm. two different tribes, right? So there was a way of unifying this whole group. But there was a process where whoever lost in these battles ended up being kind of subsumed into the dominant culture or the, in a very literal sense, like the culture that dominated that had the technology or the, or the resources or the capability of overpowering the resources and capabilities of another group. And the thing about the Israelites is that they end up getting kicked out and beaten and dominated over and over and over and over again, but they do not lose their God. Mm, exactly. They keep their God. They keep their God. And how do they do that? Right. Like that is a fascinating question. How do they end up keeping their God after all of these periods where they end up conquered or kicked out of Babylon or whatever people trying to come after them and exterminate them? Like these things have happened recurringly and they happen over and over again in the stories of the Old Testament. And yet by the time you get to the end, you know, they still have, you, you know, they're still they still have their God. They still have their text. And so I think that there's something quite fascinating going on in that, in that period of time of the Old Testament. And it ends up being the groundwork that, so you have the Old Testament and then you have kind of Plato and Aristotle in, in Greece. And you have later on, of course, the New Testament, Jesus, right? This triad is very like powerful underpinning for Western civilization and I want to know about it directly, right? Mm. I want to read it and think about it and understand it from my own vantage point rather than, of course, just like, you know, the kind of dismissive attitude that most people have towards religion mm. or religious belief. Yeah, I'm not interested in being stopped from being curious about the religious perspective or like the underpinnings of society when it comes to religion. 
uh, just because it's, you know, archaic. <laughs> exactly. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, like, just, just going on that, it's, it's interesting this is coming up because I just uh, was having a, a, um, a conversation recently with uh, some people in the uh, interintellect uh, uh, discord, and we were talking about how, like, I specifically brought up one of my... Uh, uh, the, my last episode that I just released with evolutionary astrologer, uh, Simon. And uh, I also talked with Uber Boyo. And the thing is, the thing that, you know, Uber Boyo, for those who are unaware, he's like a, a Nietzschean, a Jungian type of YouTuber, very entertaining. But what they both had in common was they both saw the last 2000 years. You could look at it as like the age of uh, Pisces uh, in the astrological sense, or as, as uh, Uber Boyle calls it, the age of Christ or religion, you know, very much much as a parallel there with uh, Christ represented as the fish of Pisces. And that what happened was in this previous age, the previous 2000 years, the age of Pisces, it was like, we are all, everyone was supposed to align with a God. To, they were look, supposed to look above and align with a universal truth, with a God. Uh, with a single truth. And what this did was this created sort of like a, a, a Manichaean dynamic. Now, all the, you know, Christianity, uh, Manichaeism, it all, you know, came about at around the same time, around 2000 years ago. And we're just transitioning out of it uh, very recently into the age of Aquarius, which is very new agey. But I mean, this is something that a lot of people, you know, with esoterics, uh, astrologers, all sorts of uh, different uh, people of different affiliations are all kind of like converging on and but what happened before that uh, as you mentioned before it was like before this 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 age of pisces people were much more open this this polytheistic nature you know it was more uh, pluralistic and uh specifically what has to do with what we're talking about is how the the christians and the muslims how they went down a uh, particular path of like this dualistic nature oppositional of good and evil and how this uh, good and evil dynamic actually helped them politicize um, good and evil and how this mobilized, you know, Christianity and Islam are the uh, two world religions with the highest amount of adherence and also why they have the most amount of religious wars. And what happened later in the modern age was basically this good and evil manichaeistic uh, dynamic was secularized. And then this translator, and what happened in my interpretation is what's happening with the meta crisis after postmodernism is basically with the decentralization of power, the 60s, the internet, social media, this uh, manichaeistic dynamic that was weaponized against the masses by the elites first uh, in the pre-modern age by the, the sovereign and the priest class by the news in the modern age nation state with the scientist class. Now what's happening is each of us is now you know weaponizing this this dualistic dynamic against each other which is why we're like all warring with each other and uh what this how this ties into judaism is because people have this monolithic view that judaism is this uh you know monolithically uh monotheist religion right uh like christianity in in islam but actually if you go back to the origins of judaism they were, they talked about El and Elohim. They talk about gods. They didn't just talk about one God. And what, what later through various iterations of the religion, then they converged on that God. They were the chosen people of that God, which may help explain why they've always had him. No matter through all their, you know, exoduses, throughout all the, the you know, the tribulations they've gone through, they always had that one God because it's coming from a history where that was the one of many, that was the one 
that was the one God of which, you know, they were chosen, which may be, which may explain why they held on to that God. And also, also may explain why they never fell into the uh, manichaeistic dynamics of later Abrahamic religions. So that's my personal interpretation of, of why things may have played out the way they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so can you explain to me what, what you mean when you say Manichaeism? Oh, so, yeah. So, uh, so Manichaeism, uh, so basically it emerged, uh, like I, I forget the exact history, but basically it emerged around like the second or third century CE um, out of, you know, the, 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 the Middle East. And it was basically um, the first major world religion that really instantiated the concept of like good and evil um because before that like with with judaism and with like early christianity with the gnostics you know like gnostics were all about knowledge and um even they were like you know um the gnostics they believed that the god that the jews worshipped right uh yalda Ba'oth, he was the false god and then there was the real god you know, <laughs> so like the early Christians, they're in a sense polytheistic and they're like the Jews, you're worshiping the wrong God. And the Jews themselves, the early Jews, they were polytheistic and they're like, oh, this is our God. But later it just become, this is our, it's like, we are the chosen people, this is our God. And then the Christians ran with it and they're like, oh, there must be only one God because we're, we're coming from Judaism, right? Judaism says there's only one God. No, Judaism actually was like, no, there are many gods and we just chose this one and gradually it just became, okay, that's the only God there is because we're the chosen people. No one else is chosen, right? So in the Manichaeism, and then Manichaeism in a broader, more general colloquial sense became to mean basically good and evil. And the thing like, for example, in Christianity, Christianity, you know, they had the concept of hell and I'm no scholar of Judaism, but they don't have a hell, you know? And like- have an afterlife. Yeah, 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 exactly. And it's just like, yeah, I mean, I mean, Jews. And so that's why like in the old Testament, I mean, God's, God acts like an asshole. <laughs> he does a lot of asshole. Like God acts like an asshole a lot of times in the Old Testament. And, you know, and he kind of manipulates, you know, human beings. And like, there wasn't this dualistic sense. There is some, there is a good, there are like some superheroes that are good. And then there are villains that are evil. It was just like, it's all the same thing. Very much like the Greek mythology, you know, it was like, it just like, morality wasn't really put into it like that. There was something that you follow but it wasn't necessarily, you know, good versus evil, but it was a Christianity, Manichaeism, all that after, that's when good and evil happened. And that's what's able to, from my interpretation, is how they're able to mobilize, they were able to politicize their religion and get people converted and get like, you know, nations, theocracies created, mm-hmm. right? So that's, yeah, that's just my interpretation of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interesting, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I think Manichaeism in that sense also has its roots in Zoroastrianism. Yes, Bard. Yeah, Bard is very familiar with that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which I haven't actually heard him talk that much about this, the splitting of the world rather than it being like substance and essence. You know, there's all sorts of ways to create a dualism. Hmm. The dualism is good and evil within Zoroastrianism. Um, and then I guess this is picked up by Christianity. Um, and, but, it, you know, it's interesting because in some sense, a lot of what we think of as being Christian, like the concept of hell, well, where does hell, hell isn't mentioned really like in the New Testament. Mm. It's like, it's not like a fully fledged concept. You could point to places where you're like, oh, well, he's kind of talking, you know, where do the rich people go if they don't go to heaven? 
when they die, right? Like, okay, so what's that, you know? Um, and then Revelation, which I haven't got to yet, but I think Revelation um, kind of gives you this portrait of what hell could be. But I think Dante's Inferno really yes, is what yeah. popularized the notion of hell. Yeah. And also because there was such a widespread institutionalization of obviously of like Roman Catholicism, the priests kind of decided what the interpretation of certain things were at any given time. And they popularized those ideas. So a lot of it you have to trace through this like lineage of Roman Catholicism itself and how they actually brought these ideas of what these interpretations are to the kind of collective thinking of Europe. And then also, of course, there is all the work that philosophers did or theologians kind of outside of the church itself on working through these ideas. Um, like a lot of philosophers were interested in contacting God. A lot of scientists mm. were interested in contacting God. Yeah, so there was, yeah. there's a lot of our understanding of who God is that's also very rooted in Plato, like the kind of Pla Plato concept of reality of like this kind of, you know, the, the, the table, right? Like mm. the platonic form. Yeah, of the, the realm table. of forms. It's like other yeah, world yeah, where yeah, everything yeah, yeah. is that's yeah. perfect. You know, it's also kind of noumenal, right? We get that with Kant, this like yeah. entirely withdrawn place that we can never have access to. That is the perfect realm that has this Gnosticism to it, right? We can get there if we die, which is like mm. very much a kind of death drive orientation. If we die, we get to be in the perfect place. But here in this world, this is the evil place. And it's it's dirty and we, we we have to cleanse it right so i think like it's interesting to disentangle all of these religions and what motivated or what caused certain kinds of behavior because you know in some sense like let's like you were talking about like conversion so conversion is a kind of like mechanism for growing your religion. It popularizes your religion. So what is the barrier to people for conversion? What's the bar to absolute, right? Well, for Judaism, it's excruciating. Like you're not going to get in <laughs> yeah. easily. Yeah, you got to like knock out. You got to be like knocking the door like a 10,000 times. Yeah. Finally, they're like, yeah. okay, maybe, maybe. Maybe, yeah, yeah. maybe, yeah, yeah. maybe. And they even had these concepts like kind of written into the way that the temples were designed where, you know, there were these layers where there, there was the, the place in the temple that everybody was, yeah, all the, the Jewish, all the Israelites, all the Jewish people could be. But then as you go kind of in closer and closer to the center, fewer and fewer people to the basically to the point where you have like the oldest or the, the most senior rabbi, you know, who's, who's the only one who can get to the center. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's this kind of process of moving through space that eliminates people and relationship to how close they are to to the divine truth. Um, and I think that like in Christianity, you have this conversion imperative, right? You have to take a whole entire empire and convert them to this new religion. Hmm. And the idea is that if you, you know, if you accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah figure who dies on the cross for the sins of man, then you can begin to, you know, worship and you can be considered a Christian. And that as a mechanism, uh, like was really, I mean, it's really effective. It's, it's even more effective today. I think, um, you know, you had to be baptized previously. Uh, and I think that there was a bit of a process there, but you know, now it's like, yeah, all you have to do is accept Jesus and you're good. Right. Like there's this idea that yeah. Yeah. you can kind of have cheap access to, um, religious cleansing and, 
uh, I mean, you know, I think that's kind of trite. Like, yes, there there are ways in which these things have become popular, almost like plastic toys. You know, they're kind of like these representations of themselves that don't they they kind of reference the origin they kind of look like the thing that it is but it's actually not that thing and if you stop there if you like look at the evangelicals and you're like oh that's what christianity is it's like well no not quite <laughs> not quite yeah. there's actually yeah, quite yeah. a lot of going on here and i don't know my view is and it's it's kind of interesting this I guess this like cosmology that you brought forth, this like, you know, the age of Pisces, right? Yeah. And moving to the age of Aquarius. And there having been a kind of way that we understood the world in the West, let's say, or more broadly kind of the Middle East, Abrahamic kind of branching that produced this reality. And now that reality is no longer working. And in the ashes will arise, you know, maybe a new messiah who knows hmm. who will kind of like guide or potentially create the possibility of exodus from this decaying structure into the future uh, where we can have new systems of organization and new religious structures whether or not we get out of religion i'm very skeptical about i mm, I, yeah, I, I don't yeah. think that we're going to transcend the religious nature of humanity um which is another reason why i've been getting into these texts because I'm curious about from an evolutionary perspective how did they organize people how did these things arise um, how did they work right like in Judaism the law is almost synonymous with God I mean, mm, yeah. the Ten Commandments and the thing of it is when you violate the Ten Commandments you end up committing a sin and the wrath of God his jealousy his anger you know all of those things that you talked about comes down upon you as punishment and it's deserved punishment because you sinned against the commandments mm. and God in some sense is judgment. You know, he will punish you if you don't behave in accordance with the divine law. And, you know, the law is something in and of itself that has strong resonance even today. I think part of what we're dealing with now, kind of going back to where mm. we started, what is the law? What What is it to, to behave in a lawful manner? Is there any sanctity in the law? Like, what is the role of the state for preserving the sanctity of the law? And what happens when the law no longer represents the moral high ground? Like, what happens? Well, Jesus comes in and he flips everything over, right? Like, that's yeah. exactly what happens <laughs> yeah. between the Old and the New Testament, is Jesus is like, look, these laws are no longer sacred because the people who are observing these laws are still corrupted. They're still mm, sinning, even yeah, though yeah. they follow the rules. And so the rules are the problem, right? So, you know, he goes in and he flips over the tables and the money changers in the temple. He tells parables and stories where the hierarchies are flipped. The poor man will get into heaven before a rich man that totally reverses the sense of hierarchy that people are expecting from the divine order that they've accepted mm, in their yeah. reality. So in that sense, Jesus is kind of, I think of him as this kind of like fool or trickster character where he takes the prescribed or like the expected notions of reality and he turns them and he leaves mm. people kind of in this wake of chaos. But in doing so, he reveals that things are not as they seem and of course he also ends up 
being the point for salvation, which not every fool does that, but and that's what makes him a messiah yeah. rather than just a fool. But you know, I mean, yeah, like there's so much there, and um, specifically your talk about the law. If anyone goes on Twitter right now, they're getting limbically hijacked like a moment because it's just it's, it's it's crazy right now. But one of the few videos I did watch on Twitter was, uh, I believe, a, a Republican uh, representative talking with these you know these pro-trump supporters and they're like he was like i'm with you all that blah 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 but like look the law is the law right and like one parallel i see is like what this uprising this you know this insurgency possibly you can say is that um again like i spoke when i spoke with my evolutionary astrologer friend he was talking about how like again like we're talking about the law again god whether this universal truth whether that's the one monotheistic god whether that's the you know the modern rationalist paradigm of the scientific truth uh you know given to you by the new priest class was a scientist or it could be you know this monolithic government who tells you hey this these are the rules you follow them all of these are being turned upside down and what we're moving to right now is like we're and what we have to do is we have to be able to accept each other's truths the age of aquarius which is instead of looking above it's it's a network. It's, you know, individual truths of each person. It's a, it's returning back to the polytheistic age, you know, it, it's where, so, so again, like, it's like this whole thing is being turned upside down and possibly return and going back to maybe returning to a more cyclical nature, a more feminine nature, a more feminine relationship uh, with reality. Actually, and what I wanted to get into, and uh, which is, again, like, we're talking about religion, we're talking about, uh, uh, astrology i saw you tweet about the the great conjunction oh, yeah. <laughs> and the winter solstice and yeah, yeah. this very much goes with what we're talking about i don't know uh your particular thoughts on that and uh also i also saw you uh, another thing you're uh referencing the uh, hermetics podcast which i love and oh, that love you're reading yeah. yeah so good so good and you're reading a book on precognition and retro causality and like, mm-hmm. look, I am not surprised that, you know, all we're all starting to get into this stuff. I, I was like, evolutionary astrology. I was like, why the hell would I even do that? But I was like, my friend told me, hey, th- talk to them. I was like, okay, I'll talk with them. I just uh, finished a book on young synchronicity about, you know, a causality. And like, we're going into all these different things. And like in this meta crisis, we just have to break down these old paradigms and get into the new. And uh, I mean, the string that's running through all this and which I, I saw some uh, resonance between your path and my path is that you actually did not start off as a philosopher, quote unquote, you weren't, you were, you didn't even really plan out to be an evolutionary biologist uh, in college. You actually started out as a film and performing arts major. So I, I just, this, this, this wide diverging, uh, you know, I guess you could say, uh, mycelial path or rhizomatic path that you're taking on is I, I find a, a lot of resonance to that. So I was just wondering like, like what is uh, your common thread through all this? And like, where do you see yourself diverging off into now? Very curious about that. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think what I'm kind of beginning to understand is there is this returning to the creation of ritual or new ritual Um, or new religion, maybe, that I find myself uh, coming to. Mm. And I think that that's part of why I'm so fascinated by Alexander Bard's work and Synthism in particular, uh, because it really represents a 
attempt to create a comprehensive, coherent religion that's built off of emerging trends. Like it's not totally off base. Most mm. new religions aren't like yeah, yeah. Uh, totally coming out of nowhere. They usually arise from certain kinds of qualities or movements in the culture uh, and are kind of emerging out of those memes, I guess, or operating systems, whatever you want to say. And I think that like, you know, being someone who's interested in aesthetics, this also relates to my interest in ontological design, um, that there, there is design qualities of the world of existence and building things or creating your environment and um, being very intentional and responsive to how things change when you manipulate them and the creation of these worlds, essentially. So mm. creating worlds uh, as being one of the fundamental things that, he, that any organism does, right? So there's this process of in life where niches create organisms and organisms create niches, right? Mm, a niche exactly, is, a, yeah. is a world. A, a niche is a place where, a, where an organism can make that niche its world. It can create a morphology that is nested within the qualities of that specific niche. And when that niche is gone, your morphology is suddenly obsolete, right? Yes, yeah. And you are threatened, right? So on some level, I feel like technological progress has brought us more problems probably than it really has brought solutions. And it's also given us a sense of what it means to be human that I think is is disconnected from reality and the reconnecting to our evolutionary history allows for us to see our continuity with our historical selves and also be wary of what that means um you know human beings are not the most docile of creatures um and that's a meaningful thing that's a meaningful aspect of our behavior and existence and uh, all the qualities that arise out of human beings need to be accounted for. And so I think that there's, um, you know, starting with this idea of like creating environments. I've also been very interested in architecture or interior design. I'm a carpenter by trade. Yeah, and that's very so, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so like just building and creating things in the world, like in the tangible real world, this is another way in which Rachel Haywire and I connected is we both love architecture, right? So. Mm -hmm. I walk yeah. into a city and I'm just like, oh my God, and just in rapture by the way in which the environment creates my experience. Mm. And I think that this moves into ontological design very well because we're in, a, in an experience economy. You're providing an experience for me as your guest on your show. Mm. We're also t together collectively providing an experience for yeah. the audience yeah. that ends up watching this, mm. which is then kind of part of what becomes your brand, which is your broader kind of experience that you provide for people online. And so we're really in an experience economy. And I think that that's also what metamodernism points out, right? The metamodern mm. move is like people basically creating um, services for one another in order to learn and grow and create new kinds of worlds. So all of these things are entangled. And of course, the ontological design perspective as it's connected to UX, you know, user experience points out that technology is is kind of the the super tool for designing experience, right? <laughs> um, so 
we and we're seeing that right we're seeing a kind of crude execution of experience design with the way that limbic hijacking works social media works and we're seeing how these these loops you know the tool we make the tool and then the tool makes us even with this larping escapade at the capitol i mean this is kind of indicative of the fact that there are a bunch of like very online right-wingers on these forums getting themselves hyped up about these these ideas totally disconnected from the rest of us in reality mm. and they have a kind of mythos in their head about what's happening and they act on those impulses and that type of pattern recognition that's happening it's almost like a kind of free association state where we're just trying to recognize some semblance of meaningful pattern using yeah. a lot of tools like synchronicity right because we were total information overload right and and then that becomes a design framework it becomes a design problem how do we design these worlds for people and of course that's what you know there's been an algorithm for that it's, got an algorithm for that and it's not about human flourishing it's about maximizing time on screen right so that's kind of a crude way of for many people organizing things and allowing for their bubbles to arise and we see what that looks like it's not great uh it's it's not a great life for people mm, I, yeah. I, wouldn't pres- I wouldn't prescribe it um but i think that in terms of thinking about the integration between like a technologically advanced world and people people who are technologically advanced like i think we're seeing a clash where we don't have people who are technologically advanced we have technology that's technologically mm, advanced yeah, and we yeah, have people yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, way behind yeah 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 and yeah. we're just like way behind in that so what is what does the integration of these things look like how do we become technologically literate how do we understand the medium that we're now within and how do we become designers of it in an episode? Mm, yeah, um, exactly. And that kind of putting you in the position of the agent, I think that you're right in the sense that we're moving into an era of pluralism, where we're going to have to essentially be able to deal with the stranger. We're going to have to re-examine what in-group and out-group means, because if we're going to live in a truly pluralistic world, we have to be able to treat the out-group with respect. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We don't know how to do that. We think of them as being some sort of evil entity. And some of them, some of them, you do have to, like, you can't only just treat an outgroup with respect because some outgroups will be out to get you, hmm. right? And this is, our ancestors figured this stuff out amongst themselves because they were living in times where pe- there was no clearly superior group. And there was a lot of skirmishes between groups because there was an expansionist power that started to try and take over another smaller group and they fought back. And, you know, there were all of this tensions Mm. between multiple powers and it creates a lot of violence, you know? And so I think there's also, I think that we're, yeah, we're going to keep seeing violence. We're going to see it. Um, Mm. And tension between all of these different realities. And the thing I've been thinking about, actually, I had this thought, I think yesterday. All right, let's hear it. I was like, okay, so when it comes to um, people having different political beliefs than me, people kind of operating from different implicit kind of metaphysical positions, all of this kind of diversity of opinion, I'm going to treat it as if I'm interacting with somebody who's of a different religion than me. Okay, so so it's different. It's not, I'm going to argue about the ideas with you. We're not in that space anymore. <laughs> if we ever were 
you know, this is the way that the things that people believe are more than just thoughts that they have in their heads. This is a whole complex. It's a whole set of identities, mm. a whole set of loyalty to your group. So you end up with aesthetic signaling. You end up with a high amount of emotional investment in the things that you believe. And trying to find coherency, trying to be like, oh, well, these two thoughts that you just said, these are not coherent. These aren't logically connected. Can you please make this connection for me? Da 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 da. Like, what about this historical event? Like, honestly, I think that that matters increasingly less mm. for most interactions. Yeah, absolutely. And what it is is you're like, no, you're a person who believes that you have the one true God. I'm a person who believes that I have the one true God. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we don't believe that we have the same God. Yeah. So we basically have to learn how to interact with each other through a system of etiquette. Right. And so etiquette becomes necessary. And it's funny because I think in a lot of left wing kind of communities, there's been this total destruction of etiquette. You know, I would even say that like the radical honesty thing is kind of at the, the core of what that is. It's like that is to say you're trying to drive yourself towards authenticity and authenticity and etiquette are kind of not the same thing. Right? Like, yeah, you're right. You only get to authenticity as etiquette through like a meta portal where you're like, you basically realize that there's a, there's a sense of discontinuity between the inside and the outside and these two people in relationship with one another. And that because of that, there's like a mediator that needs to be created. And the mediator is the etiquette. <laughs> and people will kind of, I think, naturally when they try and be tolerant towards one another, but they want to also hold the difference of their opinion, their difference of their belief, these things naturally arise. And these systems of etiquette, we've pretty much dismantled them. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> you know, it used to be that you didn't talk about what was it, sex, death, religion, and politics. Yeah. You know, you didn't talk about those things with people um, in your family or you know, when you went to a party, you know, because they were, they were known to cause tensions and problems. And so instead you groomed each other, right? Like social grooming is about mm. kind of exchange of compliments and compliments, not just like, oh, Albert, you look so wonderful today. <laughs> oh, thank you, Raven. <laughs> Same to you. Oh my oh, God. Yeah. Your hair is just you know. fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> So there's there's that, but compliment as in complementarity, as in mm. where are we coherent? Where oh, do yeah. we have the same view? Like, well, people talking about their kids is like a place where, yeah, if you're Muslim and I'm Christian, whatever, like we can still talk about our kids and how well they're doing in school, or we can still talk about, you know, X, Y, Z thing, but we're not going to get a theological debate about whose God is or whose scripture or like who's the true messiah like that's not where we're going because we're just trying to have a calm and collected experience where bonding can occur while also heterogeneity is maintained yeah, yeah. and that's yeah. tricky because there's this like desire to flatten everything and to remove all the boundaries and that basically creates a homogenous substrate so how do you deal with heterogeneity? How do you deal with difference between groups, but also the necessity for people to live alongside one another in a truly pluralistic cosmopolitan society? Mm. And I think that's a big question, but we, it's not like we don't have examples of this. Like people have done this before. And I think this is why Bard is particularly interested in the Persian empire 
because yeah, yeah. they actually maintained a cosmopolitan, multicultural, multi-religious empire without ending up falling into any of these traps. And I think there's a lot to be seen there. Also, Lebanon, before it broke into religious violence, was like a place... Like, the Middle East actually has, at some point, gotten to these places of equilibrium with mm, Christian yeah. Jews and Muslims. And there's a lot to learn from those periods of time. There's also a lot to learn from when they collapse and under what conditions. Mm. Yeah, uh, that, <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot. And, like, wow. It's like, I, that's why, like... I feel like what I'm doing with Nomadic Nomad is like, I'm trying to be that bridge. I'm trying to be like, so I don't know if you see my uh, little interactions with everyone. I'm like, hey, everyone, if you see my tweets, oh, I love, I love you. I love you. Like, I'm trying to like transmit this love to everyone. And like, when whenever someone comes to my, my Discord, I give them a big welcome and I give them a big hug. I give them all the likes and the hearts, <laughs> whatever they post. I'm like, that's what I like. I'm trying to do with my own thing. And I mean, I guess maybe like, I'm just very curious about like, cause I know like you're very in tune with like the dynamics of like the, the masculine and, and the feminine, the archetypes. And like, how do you see me personifying these archetypes? I'm very curious because when I look at myself, I'm like, I'm kind of like here and I'm kind of like there. So I'm just curious. And you, you, you yourself maybe like having your own set of dynamics with the masculine feminine. I'm just curious about like how you see my coming off. Yeah. Well, cat just came here. Oh my God. Yes. Cameo. Yeah. Put him on cam. Well, you're, you're a big personality. You know that, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got it. Yeah. That's my, that's the, I'm just my gift. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, bold, I would say like, I don't know if you're from New Jersey, but like that tracks. Mm. Like, oh, yeah. If you are. <laughs> Grew up like, here. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, that, that, that tracks for me because, um, what I, I have a roommate who's also from New Jersey. Ooh, yeah. He's Jersey. Like, cool. Big, and like very kind of like uh i would almost say flirtatious without like everyone oh Um, okay cool you know you could there's a gregariousness i think um that i've Mm. noticed from people from new jersey um and i would i would characterize you as being very gregarious and being very out, almost like outrageous, like in a sense to play the fool, like yeah. kind of play this fool character yeah. um, in order to, I think, make people feel comfortable to kind of like shatter their seriousness. I, mm. I really appreciate that within this space specifically because the aesthetic is like very serious. And, yes, yes. Um, you know, I think people, when they get into things like X risk and you know, sense making it like it's like put on your monocle. Like, <laughs> yeah, monocle. Yeah, monocle emoji. Yeah. 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 Like, hmm, what's going on? Yeah. And like everybody's like very solemn, and there's like this kind of intensity that can come with. I mean, obviously, those subjects are serious subjects, but hmm. I think it leads to a kind of asymmetry of experience that people are left wanting to, to laugh and to mm-hmm. enjoy yeah, themselves. Yeah. I mean, and I think that that's something I also appreciate about Peter is that while he's yes. into all of these like dark subjects, he also cracks crude jokes. And, <laughs> yeah, Stoic Daddy. Yeah, like, yeah. He like yeah. does the Stoic Daddy thing. So, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, and I think that humor, um, you know, humor has its own kind of 
aesthetics and properties and it's a beautiful way of kind of creating a system of signals that is both inviting and also kind of pointing at either like hypocrisies or at kind of like making fun of oneself or mm. making fun of one's content in some sense like or the seriousness of of things i think that that can be quite nice it's like yes here we are we're trying to dive into these serious topics but also like i'm a fool you're a fool we're all fools <laughs> exactly like, yeah what are we even trying to do here mm. right like if we think of ourselves as being too important we've already lost sight mm. of what we're doing and it's very easy when you're thinking important things you know to think of yourself as being like really important. <laughs> yeah Really, I'm exactly. so important. My ideas are so important. Everybody should listen to me. It's like, well, no, is that so really the case? Like, I don't know. Like, be be humble, man. You know. And I think that that's yeah. what I get from you is like a lot of thank you. Just like playful and kind of trickster, humorous character who's not afraid to like step into. Also, like. I would say kind of an American aesthetic, like the game show aesthetic. Yeah. Very yeah. like American kind yeah. of like celebrity or like trash television kind of thing. So I think there's also like a lowbrow, yeah. highbrow thing going yeah. on, which I really like. Thank um, you, thank you. So I don't know. And and then for you in terms of like masculine or feminine, I feel like I do see you in a kind of androgynous way or and mm. not in the sense that you're like, desexualize but like that you have kind of these mergings of yeah like sex. yeah they're both like this yeah 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 because yeah. like the warmth kind of like the warming maternal kind of feeling and being really affectionate and like openly caring is like considered to be more of like that motherly feeling um but you could also consider that to be like a kind of brotherly love that you're like extending a kind of brotherly mm. love to people like a sibling kind of notion towards those who are brought into your group to make sure that they feel welcome that kind of behavior very non-rivalrous right it's very much yeah. to like put yourself in a kind of humbling position and to welcome others and uplift others and uh, i think that runs contrary to some ideas about what masculinity is but you also are like also very male <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah you're, yeah you're like bodybuilding dude yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah exactly like, yeah i'm just yeah i see myself as like embodying like i'm very masculine and i'm very feminine and like like when you say like i'm kind of like an engine but not like i'm in like a middle ground yeah. as in like i'm here and i'm here and like when you mm -hmm. add them together i'm kind of like over yeah. here so sure. Yeah. So, I mean, like, thank you so much. I, I, I really appreciate that, especially coming from you. I know you're very much into aesthetics. Uh, I like how you uh, talk, call me a game show host and uh, uh, like trash TV. Like, I take that as a compliment. Like, I, <laughs> I <Yeah>. love that. <laughs> and um, I would actually like, I, like, I'm very much. OK, let me talk about your aesthetic. Cause, OK, so let me talk about, let me, let's, let me talk about this. OK, I'll be honest. Raven, you scare the hell out of me. For a long time, one of the reasons why I was like, you know, I was like, you know, I'd be honestly more comfortable like interviewing Elon Musk than talking to you because I'm like, oh my God, Raven, Raven's so smart. And she's like, oh, like dark. And I don't know. I think she's good. I'm like really scared of her. Like she's very like, like, I don't know, gothy and, and like, and like into darkness and death and all that stuff. But when I, but also it's kind of like when I like actually like, uh, 
you know, like interact with you. And like, I see your other, like, you know, like conversations, interactions, you're like, Hey, I'm Raven. I'm like this. And I see this light. I'm like, wait a minute, where's this coming from? I see this brightness, this sparkiness, even girlishness, energetic is it's very youthful to me. And I'm like, this kind of like, but then there's also this and how, like, I know, like you grew up in Olympia. They're kind of like, you know, very much, I don't you know, again, radical anarchists and all that, like very, very punk and all that stuff but i see this ooh, like this and it's kind of like with me as well if you just saw me walking down the street or something like I'm, i don't know i could be like a dude bro but hey i mean if we have a talk like i could just i give you a big hug i mean like you know i'm i'm a vegan i'm a virgin i'm really yeah. weird right so it's, like, it's kind of all weird so i'm just i'm just curious about like how you yourself like how do you see yourself as like your aesthetic your expression your performance because like to me like I'm I'm putting on performance right now, but it's all you know. But it's just also, but it's also part of me. This is also like one of my many personae. Like I'm, I'm just curious about how you see yourself uh, expressing yourself and and your presentation to the world and how you see yourself. Yeah, that's a big question. I think yeah, I'm sorry about through, that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been going through kind of a metamorphosis. Like, mm. if you like, you can see from my Stoa videos, like how my hair has changed. <laughs> yes, I've definitely noticed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because like I used to have like a really intense, edgy kind of goth look, and ulti- actually, ultimately, it was just like a lot of maintenance to keep mm. it up. And also, I realized that it was kind of intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> like I just, yeah, I just admitted, yeah. Um, and I think I already come off as intimidating to people, even without having a really intense look that's mm. actually kind of designed to be intimidating. I've, Interesting. I've definitely leaned on that as a um, aesthetic dimension, um, being kind of almost scary in mm. terms of how I present myself, and kind of displaying, yeah, my like affinity for dark and serious things as a way of filtering people basically who talk to me on some mm. level and i think personally i think that had a lot to do with just being young and not really knowing how to handle a lot of attention um and like i mean young women just are like deal with a lot yeah <laughs> of yeah. like attention and my way of like dealing with that was just like looking really intense and like people not talking to me because of that <laughs> um <laughs> And it, I mean, it largely works, but also doesn't. I mean, I go out to the store at, or like whatever, and people just talk to me, right? And I'm just, I just talk to people. Like I'm very extroverted. I love interacting with strangers. I love interacting with strangers. Like people that I'm only ever going to exchange a sentence with or whatever. It's like it's part of what I enjoy about living in a city or living in a society is is these kind of like small exchanges. And I feel like my look never really stopped people really that much (laughs) they saw it you can't fool us too long i can't fool them yeah 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 no it was only people who you know there's a kind of pretension of like going to parties and you know wanting to look a certain way and wanting Mm. to attract a certain kind of person and all of that um that i think those things actually ended up working so it was more like in my peer group and within the realm of like acquaintances that i think that I was really uh, mobilizing my aesthetic for those kinds of purposes. But, you know, a lot of it is also retrospective. Like on some level, you're attracted to the presentation that you're attracted to and you express it. And then you only realize through leaving it behind what it was doing for you. Mm. And I think, I think now I'm interested in maturing 
I'm interested in presenting myself as like a grown woman. And that is causing me to look towards different kinds of aesthetic presentations, certain kinds of ways in which I would like to talk or certain types of things I'd like to talk about. That's something I've been thinking a lot about in terms of being online because your, your signifiers, the things that you say online and, and the, how you talk, all of that becomes essentially your clothes. Yeah. It becomes yeah. what you're wearing. Mm. Um, it becomes your display. And I've been thinking about, okay, well, what are the things that I want to talk about publicly? And what are the things that I don't want to talk about publicly? And I think in some sense, this is related to my understanding of like the public versus the private and like, what are the things that I'm holding sacred or what are the things that I just don't think are other people's business, you know, mm. um, or that I don't have any business talking to other people about. So I'm trying to sort those things out. And I think that that does relate to the aesthetic dimension for me. Mm. And it's because I'm, I am questioning this kind of exposure society right like yeah, this, ex- yeah. this massive kind of like expose 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 there's a little or there's a literal kind of exposure where people just like are literally taking their clothes yeah only fans yeah. yeah yeah i mean yeah. and or just like people mm. just posting pictures of themselves like on their twitters like it's it's there's really a lot of that or like there's a vulnerability kind of exposure where mm. you talk about your feelings in a really intimate way or you talk about sexual experiences in a really intimate way and you just publicize it all I mean, this is probably more dispositional than anything, and I really shouldn't make it into any kind of like larger socio or like political point. But I think there's a reservation that I have just as a person towards certain types of like intimate knowledge. And so I don't feel Mm. particularly comfortable with just like vulnerability posting on Twitter because Uh. it's a public forum. I don't know who's going to read it. Like, it doesn't feel good to me to do that type of thing. Mm. Um, I, you know, I can, I can rationally be like, well, this is what people should do, but you know, I don't (laughs) don't know that that's actually the case, but it does seem to be a phenomenon. And I think it's actually been something that's kept me out of social media Mm. in my life in general is that this was like what people did. This was the trend, Instagram, expose your life, Facebook, expose your life, you know, I didn't like doing any of those things. So I left both of those platforms and I went to Twitter because Twitter was like people talking about their ideas. And, but, you know, now I've come to see that there is also a kind of life exposing trend on Twitter, but with certain accounts, certain worlds of certain accounts as well. And so it brings up the question, well, what are the things that I want to share? And I think for me, I'm much more comfortable with sharing my ideas than I am my personal life but unfortunately there's also a deep entanglement I mean like I'm for example I'm interested in in marriage and like the revivification of like marriage as an institution and that obviously entangles in some way with my personal life Mm, and my personal beliefs and I think talking about my personal beliefs could actually help contextualize why marriage is important to me and why I think it's an important thing for other people to consider just like talking about like polyamory versus monogamy kind of ends up making whoever's talking about it kind of implicit in the conversation. Well, what are, what is, what is your relationship dynamic? What do you think about relationships? Um, Where are you coming from? Yeah. So I don't know whether or not to share some of these things. It's, it's very complicated. And I think it also relates to the kind of attention that you end up getting as well. Um, And I don't know what kind of attention I want to get on some level because every time, like I actually make a tweet, 
and I actually get responses, I have to like, ner- I have to engage. Yeah, yeah. I know what that's like right now. It's, it gets overwhelming sometimes. Yeah, it yeah, can get yeah. overwhelming. You're like, oh yeah. my God. You know, so like to me, I don't want to agitate people because I don't want to deal with agitation. That's not interesting to me. And I don't know about what other kinds of things, what other kinds of people or what other kinds of conversations I'd like to be having when they have that public presentation. Um, whereas here, you know, I feel like I'm talking to you. <laughs> It's just Albert. Who's this guy? I know. I'm like, I'm Albert. It's intimate, right? Even though it's going to be posted afterwards, (laughs) Mm. you know, um, and people are going to see it. It's going to be on the internet for God knows how long. Who knows if I'll ever look at it again. I I have a tendency to not want to look at the things that I've produced. Yeah, I I know that feel definitely. But I mean, yeah, I I completely get that. And like, you know, like for, for a long time, like, when I'm doing this, right, like if you were just to be like, watch one of my episodes, be like, oh, Albert, he's just I'm always been some gregarious dude. I spent the last 10 years basically as a hermit. I, I didn't have any social media. I, I all had no inter. I almost had almost no interaction with human beings in general. They just like going through this whole meta crisis thing. And I'm like, oh, my God, there's COVID. I'll just eh. and then I was like, I just activated. I was just like, OK, now I'm going. I'm just ready to go. And like, this is how I'm doing it. And I'm going whole hog. You talking about like, I don't know what to share. I'm going the, I'm going like, I'm sharing everything. Do you recall some of the things I, I, I've i confessed in this conversation? I'm just like, I'm just going. And that's my personal thing. And just like, there's no right or wrong answer. This is how I'm doing it. You know, Peter is very public and Peter has his own thing right now. It's like, first of all, he's always had his very, uh, his very open letters where he mm-hmm. goes deep into his psyche, you know, sends out the daily letter. And then he's like, oh, okay, I'm going to shut it down. No, wait, no, no, I'm going to steal the culture. It's like, no, 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 I'm going to get a normie job. It's like, oh, no, no, I'm going to invite everyone tomorrow. Like he goes to this thing that's very public. And, but now he's kind of like, now he's coming back, you know, and now he's like, like he's forming boundaries. And that's like one of the things that's been coming up a, a lot recently. People talk about what kind of boundaries what kind of membranes using the uh, yeah. biological metaphor that we need to set up it can't be fully open you know like a semi-permeable what do we want to let in and what do we not so yeah I, I and that you know so again like that's how i've been doing it and like what you're talking about before how it's like you know you want to put on this front i mean well, I guess I, I, I'm projecting because I put on a front <laughs> you could put a call front you could call it a persona whatever again like this bodybuilding thing or whatever it was because I was picked on mercilessly as a kid I was beat up this is why I, and I got you know I got a tattoo on my arm you know just like oh look at me I, I have I wear my tank top don't mess with Albert because if you do he might you know crumble into a little ball and start crying so I you know I, I get that and my friend Monica uh in episode number four of Noetic Nomads she was in the art world right and you know and uh dominated in her circle by males what she did she got a super short haircut uh and then she would just put on a mean face it's like you don't mess with me and that's what got her through but now she's like in her 50s now she just and she told me like hey now i'm just gonna start growing out my ponytail i'm like hey this is me monica so it's it's very interesting like again like these uh these, these personae that we 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 have to well we don't have to we choose to and then all the different personae right now i again like i'm embodying a persona you know if i'm talking with my grandmother i'm not going to be like this you know i'm talking with my mother i'm not going to be like this so yeah yeah so yeah I, I i definitely get that and uh i love uh this whole conversation 
and all the amazing stuff that's happened. So I just want to say uh, thank you uh, for coming on Raven and uh, for all the shares. And even if you don't watch it again, uh, I mean, I just want to tell you uh, it's been amazing. And I think people will get a lot out of it, whether it's intellectual, whether it's just the, the craziness and whether it's just, you know, just two people just connecting. So again, thank you. I, I just love it. Thank you so much for having me. It's, I mean, it's been a pleasure and it's, it's been really fun to watch you emerge in this, in this space. <laughs> and I look forward to all of the other mischief that you're going to get into. Yes, yes. <laughs> much mischief. And uh, again, I, I, I'm definitely looking forward to everything that's coming from you, Raven. I mean, like you've been uh, talking with my friend Tia um, about uh, all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, and I don't know what's gonna happen there, but like what emerges from that? Yeah. I'm very excited about what emerges from your continual evolution, my, you know, everyone's continual evolution. What the hell to have a Stoa? We don't know if the Stoa is gonna be here in two months. So, I mean, I'm just, whatever happens, I mean, I'm just looking forward to it. Even with what happened yesterday. Oh yeah, that thing happened yeah. yesterday. Oh yeah, that's <laughs> that thing. Oh yeah, we forgot in the conversation. That <sighs> thing happened yesterday. I just, it's funny. Like I refer to it as that thing. Just like I refer to that 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 little virus thing that it. I just, the other thing. The other thing. Yeah, lots of the things happening. Thing. But yeah, yeah let's just let's thing. just for like this hour and a half, just pretend like it doesn't exist and just like just chill, right? Mm -hmm. So again, awesome. So thank you so much, Raven. So where can people learn more about the lovely and amazing Raven Connolly social media links resources? Where can people find you? Yeah, I mean I'm on Twitter at spiral underscore virus i made that name before the pandemic <laughs> I know, yeah. what are your thoughts on it right now you're like you st i still love the dna but it's like yeah that other thing yeah yeah it's very funny to me um that that's okay the kitty um yeah yeah that's pretty much it i am working on putting my ideas somewhere else in in the in the world on the internet mm, interesting um, okay i have uh groups that i'm going to be like i obviously i run the bible study group but i'm also going to be doing a weird theology group um as well with with mm. an organization philosophy organization that i facilitate for and we're going to be going into the emergence of the belief in extraterrestrials and whoa interesting um, that kind of that kind of stuff so i'm looking at like emerging religions or proto-religions open source religions like QAnon, for example mm. yeah a lot of my public facing stuff is actually workshops or um you know facilitating that i'm doing and so you can find that stuff or if you want to message me and ask me about that on twitter i'm totally open to that um but i'll be publishing my, my new stuff soon once it gets rolling Cool beans. Super excited about that. Again, Raven, one of the most amazing women out there, which is why I'm so glad that you were able to come on and share all your amazing knowledge and leak some of these amazing projects coming up. So again, thank you so much, Raven, for coming on. And that's it for another episode of Nodic Nomads. Peace out and step up because the world needs you. Okay, bye. All right, and we are done.